0: Well, thank you so much janet Uh, i told my daughter yesterday that i would be in a way honored today and she asked how i would be honored Uh, i told her that i would be giving a short speech at the uva law foundation Um, she she looked a little puzzled she said your honor involves extra work (laughs) and uh, i then gave her the honor of sweeping the floor in the kitchen and (laughs) emptying the dishes Um, but i was right this is an honor because i can look at this audience and see faculty members um, who are tremendous scholars and certainly better public speakers than I am and so I I am honored to be here today before I begin I wanted to thank three members of the law school community who asked me if I needed any assistance Um, and I want to thank Laura Randy and Brian each of them sent me emails saying can I help you can I help you can I help you and um, I didn't need any help um, but the fact that uh, they offered their assistance speaks well of the community we have and of course it speaks um, well of you folks that you made it all possible, right? That you folks in this room made uh, this lunch and my speech possible. So um, about the book, the book is called Imperial from the Beginning. It's a soup to nuts uh, exploration of the original presidency with uh, 13 chapters on sort of everything you wanted to know about the original presidency. Um, The basic thrust of the book is that the original presidency um, was in fact quite powerful and was routinely compared to a monarchy. I think the president wasn't some weak executive, as some people might suppose, but was, in fact, quite strong. Um, the book is available on Amazon and at uh, <laughs> Yale Press. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to say get them while they last, but I really can't. We're not in a situation of scarcity here, so you don't need to rush uh, to get your copy of the book. Um, in the book, I explain how the uh, executive power, the president's power, has expanded over time at the Philadelphia Convention. The Virginia plan put forth by Virginia delegates um, simply envisioned a law enforcement executive with some power to appoint and a veto authority. The executive had no authority over foreign affairs, military affairs, had no pardon power, and the apex of the executive branch was left deliberately vague. That is to say, we didn't know whether there was going to be one or multiple executives. Edmund Randolph at the convention spoke up in favor of a triumvirate. He wanted to have a three-person chief executive council of sorts that would run the executive branch. Um, He lost. Um, He lost that fight, and we got one. And uh, he argued that having one executive would be a fetus of a monarchy. And he was right. Over the course of the convention, delegates uh, repeatedly granted more and more powers to the president, powers over foreign affairs, powers over the military, and, of course, uh, the pardon power. By the end of the convention, Edmund Randolph said that the people, upon looking at the uh, Constitution, would behold the form, at least, of a little monarch. And he was right again. Uh, Person after person looking at the Constitution said, this is a monarchy in all but name. Uh, And why did they think that? Well, think about the powers that he had and compare them to the powers that were vested in the state executives. State executives were rather weak. Many of them only served one-year terms. Many of them were term-limited, meaning they could only serve one term. Uh, Many of them had to operate by and with the advice and consent of a council. Some executives were councils, right? The Pennsylvania executive was nothing but a council of, of executive officers who had to act by a majority vote. Um, many executives lacked the veto power. Most executives lacked a pardon power. Um, um, most executives lacked a, uh, c- absolute control over appointments. And so when you compare the presidency to those executives, Uh, The executive, the the, the federal executive, the American president looks far stronger, but that's not the only comparison one can draw, of course, right? You can compare the executive to the monarchs in Europe, and those comparisons came fast and furious. Thomas Jefferson said the presidency looked like a bad addition of the Polish monarch, the Polish king. And what he meant by that is we've got an elective monarch here under the title of president, and of course Poland had an elective monarchy as well. John Adams said that the president had more powers than any other uh, European monarch or any European monarch, save for the British monarchy. And he, he, he had looked at all of them. He had written this multi-volume treatise on constitutions, and he said, "I've looked at all of them, and the American presidency is stronger than all of them, save for the British monarch." Anti-Federalists said the king was all was it, sorry. <clears throat> Anti-Federalists said the president was a king in all but name. Uh, the only thing he lacked was the power to create nobility, right? To create peers in the House of Lords. And then finally, the Dutch stadtholder said that the Americans had given themselves, quote, a king under the title of president. And that's the title of my first chapter. So the basic thrust of the book is we've had an imperial president from the beginning, an imperial executive from the beginning. Uh, It's not an all-powerful executive. It's a limited republican monarch of the sort that England had. We think of England as a monarchy, but um, Montesquieu described England as a republic disguised as a monarchy, meaning he thought it was partly Republican, not entirely monarchical. And of course, in the 18th century, they had this theory of mixed monarchies, right, that were both Republican and monarchical. And I think the American system can be described in the same way. In the remaining time I have with you, I want to switch gears and speak about the modern presidency and the way that it's evolved over time by focusing on two uh, issues. First, I want to talk about the Presentment Clause. The clause seems unimportant, and, and maybe it is uh, but it wouldn't be the first time that a professor is focused on something unimportant. Um, the Presentment Clause says that all bills have to go to the president before becoming law. And then he has 10 days to decide whether to sign them. Um, and he can either you know, send back his objections, in which case it's, we call it a veto, and then they can override. If he doesn't send back his objections within 10 days, the bill becomes law automatically. And so the Presentment Clause seems to suggest that presidents have 10 days to consider a bill. And that seems to make sense you want to give presidents time to consider whether to sign the bill or to veto it. Um, But that's not the way the Presentment Clause actually worked, um, at least for some periods of uh, congressional sessions. In the good old days, uh, presidents and Congresses read this uh, provision differently. Presidents acted as if they had to sign all bills into law prior to the end of a session. Every year Congress has a session, uh, every year it ends. And they took the position that if a bill was given to them in the waning days or hours of a session they had to sign it if at all during that session and if they didn't sign the bill into law during that session it could not be signed into law what does that mean practically it means that presidents would trundle over to Congress on the last day of a session sit in a room with their cabinet members wait for bills quickly read them and decide whether to sign them or not if they did not sign them they did not have the luxury of going back to their residence and deciding whether to stay them. Um, this was not an ideal way of considering bills, right? Because you could only—you might have only hours or minutes to do so. Um, you're often reading them at night because the end of the session is at midnight. And Congress sometimes played games. Congress would sometimes stop the clock to give themselves and the president more time to either pass or consider a bill before the end of the session. And then sometimes they'd have to extend their sessions if they if they could do that. Um, this was terrible, as I said, because the president couldn't adequately consider the merits of the bill. George Washington was the first president to sort of labor under this system, and he said, the Constitution says, I have 10 days, but I really don't. The most important bills come up at the end of session, and I have to pour over them within minutes with the help of my advisors. Um, gradually, over, over the course of decades, people came to question where this rule came from, because the Constitution doesn't say that bills expire at the end of a session. And um, people said, well, why should we have to do this? Why do presidents have to go to Congress? Why don't they actually have the 10 days the Constitution seems to contemplate? And the old answer had been people had supposed that the Constitution had incorporated the British notion of session. In England, at the end of the session, if a bill did not become a law, it did not become a law at all. You had to start from square one. Basically, the founders and, and many state constitutions had incorporated that rule sub silencio. Um, but people didn't understand that, and so they started saying, why do we have to do this? And so over time, we've moved to what I would consider a superior rule, right? Nowadays, the president can sign a bill after Congress has ended the session, and presidents take 10 full days. And in fact, presidents have signed bills um, after the end of Congress as well. And so this, to me, is an example uh, of an evolving presidency, in this case, um, it's a better system of presentation because the president has more time to consider the bills, um, and it's not any of us anything that any of us care about. Most of us don't know about it. Um, the only one who probably cares about it is me. Um, I also want to discuss presidential review. Right? Presidential review. We're all sort of familiar with judicial review. Judicial review is where courts decide whether legislation is constitutional. Uh, but there has long been a practice of presidents deciding whether statutes are constitutional as well, not only at presentment, but also when deciding whether to enforce them, enforce those statutes. And, of course, the vast majority of statutes that a president has to confront are statutes passed before he or she gets into office, right? Um, most of the laws are already on the books. The first president to confront these issues was Thomas Jefferson, meaning the first president who thought he saw a law in the books that was unconstitutional was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson had run against the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, Many Republicans had been prosecuted by the Adams administration at the behest of John Adams. And Thomas Jefferson thought the Sedition Act was unconstitutional. When he came into office, there were pending prosecutions of of publishers under the Sedition Act. And Thomas Jefferson decided he was not going to continue those prosecutions. He didn't pardon those people. He just said, I'm going to stop them. And he gave instructions to his attorneys. This is Thomas Jefferson engaged in executive review. He's deciding that uh, under the Constitution, he does not have to enforce these statutes. And actually, he put it in stronger terms. He said, I could not enforce these statutes because they're unconstitutional. They're nullities. And I have no option but not to enforce them. And he said he compared it to a statute that required people to worship a golden bull. And just as that statute, he said, would be unconstitutional, so too is the uh, Sedition Act. Ever since then, presidents from time to time have refused to honor statutes that they think are unconstitutional. In the modern era, there's no longer a sense that presidents are uh, constitutionally barred from enforcing statutes that they think are unconstitutional. Nowadays, presidents talk about this as if they have an option. Jefferson thought he had a duty not to enforce statutes that were unconstitutional on the grounds that they were nullities, they they were nothings. But modern presidents talk about this as if they have the option. They have the option to decide whether to enforce an unconstitutional statute. And then they have the option, even should they enforce it, to decide whether to defend the statute. Right. So they decide whether to enforce it, and they decide whether to defend it. And uh, this set of options, in my mind, gives the president a certain, set, a certain flexibility. Um, the president can be more passive in certain situations. He can be more uh, active in others, all in defense of the Constitution. Is this a good or bad thing? Um, Let me sketch out why one might think this is a good evolution in practice. Um, I know that there's no knockdown argument in favor of this practice of discretionary presidential review, but let me just give you some ideas about why one might think it's a good idea. First, the judiciary will never be able to review the constitutionality of some federal statutes, right, because of jurisdictional concerns. And perhaps a post-veto constitutional check is a good idea. right? So once we understand that judiciary can't review all statutes, because people won't have standing or there won't be a there'll be a political question, et cetera. Maybe we do want to have someone else besides the original president conduct some sort of constitutional review. Second, you might argue the president is more is a more democratically legitimate constitutional defender than the courts, right? He is typically, typically indirectly elected by the people, and the courts, of course, are not. Third, if you think there's increased demand for constitutional law, constitutional protections. The president is an efficient, responsible supplier of constitutional constraints, right? He he can do things much more quickly than the courts, and there's no need, again, for standing requirements or a case or controversy requirement either. As long as he's involved in the execution, he can decide not to execute the statute. And then fourth and finally, and I think this is a virtue, presidential review is more easily reversible because presidents do not seem bound to honor the constitutional claims of their predecessors. This gives constitutional law a certain flexibility that is, perhaps, desirable. So I suspect that a presidential review of this sort will become increasingly popular over time. Why? I think interest groups, as they see presidents decide not to enforce statutes or not to defend them, will come to see it as an option that presidents can exercise, and they will ask the president to exercise them. We're already seeing this in state election races for attorney general. And you know, I would not be surprised if Republicans ran on the platform of not enforcing Obamacare on some claim that it's unconstitutional. I wouldn't be surprised if some Democrats said, I'm going to close Guantanamo, notwithstanding whatever appropriation writers or whatever provisions Republicans might put in a statute on the grounds that Guantanamo somehow violates the president's power as commander in chief. So I, I think there's a, there's a way to sort of leverage this in a sort of political way. And that, of course, will make it more regular. I will lay out two additional issues um, where you might suspect that the Constitution the Constitution of the executive has evolved in a, in, a, in a beneficial way. At least I'll sketch out the claim and you can disagree. If you favor more international law, you favor a shift from treaties to so-called Congressional Executive Agreements. What are Congressional Executive Agreements? They're basically statutes that instantiate an international agreement between the United States and a foreign country, or the United States and other foreign countries, multiple countries. And uh, it's a way of evading the Treaty Clause. It's a a way of evading the two-thirds requirements. And we've seen this happen uh, over and over again uh, from the beginning of the 20th century on. So if you want to have more treaties, for lack of a better word, but you can't get them through the Senate, you call it a congressional executive agreement, and you get it through. So this argument only makes sense for people who want more international agreements. But if you do, this is sort of a beneficial move that's occurred in the last century. And another place um, where you might think the move has been beneficial, and this is much more controversial, is war powers. The president now exercises a power to wage war, notwithstanding the the declare war clause in the Constitution. Is that a good or bad thing? Um, I don't really know, but one can sketch an argument for why it's a good thing. If you believe America has interests all around the world and you believe that we ought to be fighting more wars, two controversial sort of propositions, um, you'll favor a regime where we are able to fight more wars without having to go to Congress. And there definitely are people who think this way and who've made this claim about, about the, the sort of features of the, um, of the modern Constitution when it comes to war powers. Um, so I don't want to suggest, or this is my conclusion, so I'll telegraph it to you. I don't want to suggest that all evolutions in, the presidential, in presidential powers are beneficial, much less ideal. But as you might expect, at least some of the changes respond to evolving external pressures and circumstances, and at least some of the changes in the presidency are unambiguously good ones, and I'm thinking here of the presentment clause. So if you have more bills and you have more important bills, it makes sense that the president has more time to consider them at the end of the session. And if you think you need more constitutional law, meaning more constitutional protections, you might favor this extra layer of presidential review on top of the other layers that already exist, namely, congressional consideration of the constitutionality of statutes, the veto, and judicial review. And if you wish to fight more wars, well, you understand my point.